Quick Park. Not that that doesn't stop most people, but like we prefer that our people don't do that, all right? So anyway, yes? Mif Mifflin Park, I think it's 5th and Ritter down there, all right? Okay, so, all right, covered everything. So we've been talking about transformation this summer. And we've talked about using our Bible. Remember we talked about using our Bible tools the right way? And that if you take this side of the blade and you do this an awful lot, you might wear a blister on your hand or you might wear a rut in the wood, but you don't really ever accomplish your goal. You just do a lot of this. But if you were to do this, you know. I heard that I made someone nervous the last time I did this. I kept thinking, he's going to cut his hand off. You know, but if you did this... Yeah, that saw is going to grab into the wood, and you do it enough, it's going to do its job, right? So you use the tools the right way for transformation. It makes all the difference in the world. Last week, last week, let's get that up here. Last week we talked about, we talked about beads and baubles and trinkets and how there's so much of the time there's worthless things that tie us down and inhibit us from pursuing things of greater value. We talked about that last week. Well, this week we're going to talk about um, some, this. This is called, you know, a stock or the stocks, you know, and, and it was a, a, uh, a form of punishment dating back to the medieval times. Um, it, uh, it was kind of like a public humiliation kind of tool. And I, I really don't think we can get the full impact of it until we see how it's properly used. Does anyone want to vote somebody to be that volunteer? Oh, wait a minute. Not, no, girls cannot vote. Um, guys cannot. She's your fiance, and you just voted her to go up here? Oh, man. So we're going to have a long marital counseling session with you. Evan? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Now then, have a seat, Evan. Have a seat. Have a seat. And now then put your lovely feet in there. There you go. There you go. Thank you very much. Now then put your hands in there. Now then, the way this would have worked, his hands might have been cuffed in such a way that it couldn't be drawn through. And you see there's holes right here that, um, you know, would keep this in place and all. And that would be basically the kind of way that Evan would be for however long that punishment felt like he had to be there. You know, the, 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 however long the crime warranted Evan to be there. Now, if you need to get a good angle on him, please stand up. You know, you don't see this in church every week. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and make sure you get a photo of this to his parents, all right? <laughs> he was a bad boy today, all right? And so what would happen would be he would come by, and like if he didn't have shoes on, they'd come by and they'd slap the bottom of his feet with a stick or something and kind of like make that. That'd be often what would happen. Or if they really didn't like him, they'd come by and just smack him as they go, you know. Or they could hurl like, you know, that. There, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Apparently, apparently, Gary Walsh has done this before. Yeah. I would, uh, Kevin, did you experience this in your home? Yes, very good. There's one of these in your basement, I bet. Yeah. And so they would hurl things at him, you know, like, you know, the leftovers from dinner, things like that. They would also very possibly just take a moment, like if they were at Mifflin Park later today and needed to relieve themselves, they would just do it right here. You know, they would perhaps urinate or other things to expand the humiliation upon the person. But I think doing that would be pretty humiliating as well. 
So I'm not sure. So this is what would happen. Now, then the problem with this is it is intended for humiliation, but the fact of the matter is, is because on a week like this, in heat exhaustion, or in the wintertime, hypothermia or something, then often the humiliated person who would perhaps die of exposure. And so this person, as you can tell, if he was, if he was um, is that comfortable? Are you having a good time? Oh, yeah. Thank, thank you. All right, good. <laughs> Um, because this person, he would very often, you know, uh, maybe if he was stealing chickens, you know, or something like that, which, I mean, he lives in my neighborhood. The chicken population has decreased since the king's moved in the neighborhood. Um, if he was stealing chickens, you know, right now, he would not be able to steal chickens, would he? Whatever his crime was, he would be not be able to do it because he was being held captive. And he would be powerless to continue to commit that crime, wouldn't he? Yes, he would be. Yeah, and so if you think about being held captive, that's what we're talking about today. You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 10. Do you want to just stay there for the service, or would you like to sit down? Yeah, okay, very good. Now then, there you go. And so there you go. Thank you, Evan. Everyone give Evan a round of applause for being our captive. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. That's going to be our verse for today. In this particular passage here, Paul's writing, and he, um, in this short statement, he sets forth another principle that we can use toward our spiritual transformation. Let's read it together here in 2 Corinthians. It's, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Look on your bulletin cover this morning, and there's a quote there by Ravi Zacharias. And Ravi says there, he says, Your hands and your feet follow your mind and your heart. And so whatever has your mind and your heart held captive... That is exactly what your hands and feet will do. Whatever is influencing your mind and your heart, your feet and your hands, your behavior will follow. And so, in this particular passage, as we look at it, you'll notice that there's, a matter of fact, if you even want to right now, I was going to refer to it later, but if you want to look at it right now, um, if you look at also, start look at it, verses 3 and 4 also. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So our passage, 3 through 5, really does have a military type of tone to it, doesn't it? It has this tone of of capturing um, uh, two opposing forces you know, armies vying for strategic land and for occupying land. And anytime you know that one army is occupying a particular land, a hill, a city, the other army is not. But the other army is vying for that same position. It reminds me very much of the, of the game that we, perhaps you've, you've played in the past when you were a child or still maybe have played it, Stratego. You remember in Stratego you had moved your pieces on the board so that your other, you know, so that you could take over the board and your opposing, your blue army or whatever the case may be, was minimized 
and their power, their influence, their presence was very little. Except for in this verse, we're not talking about land, and no, we're not talking about board space. We're not talking about strategic hills or strategic cities or anything of that nature. We're talking about mindsets. We're talking about worldviews. We're talking about philosophies. You know, that's what the verse says. It says, we destroy arguments and every pretense. Perhaps your Bible, uh, who else might have a way that your Bible says that differently? Does it say, we're, for verse 5, we de- demolish what? Anyone else have a different version? Maybe say something there. Speculations. Very good. I love that particular one. Every lofty opinion. Every lofty opinion. Amen. Yep. Every lofty opinion. Speculations. It says all this stuff. That's what we're really talking about. That's what we're buying against. That's what's being struggled with here is opinions, ideas, philosophies. Not landmass. And then as the passage already said, it's not either is it physical armies, but it is divine spiritual armies that are vying for all this. And so this, this imagery is what we want, to, we want to focus on today. Matter of fact, it's really what we're talking about. It's right here. This is the battleground that we're talking about. It's the mind which you know, affects the heart and our affections and then affects, as Ravi says, our hands and our feet, our behavior. And so whatever, whatever is, is the prevalent thought, whatever holds that mind captive, so to speak, is what's going to control the rest of the body. So, that's what we're talking about. This Friday night, this past Friday night, in our uh, uh, True You DVD series, um, does God exist? That um, it was just an outstanding session, and um, and it just spoke to this so so well. The series is just very well done, and in this particular one, it is really talking about how to help for us to understand the ideas, the concepts, the philosophies of our day that are attempting to set up arguments, um, uh, speculations, opinions um, that fly in the face, or they're vying against knowledge of God. That are saying that these things are true, and, they're, and, and the, the word of God is not true. And so these are the things that your mind needs to be camped upon. These are the things your mind needs to be thinking about. These are the things that your mind needs to consider as truth. And so in the DVD series, they're taking all those, those kinds of lofty opinions and they're taking truth against them and they're demonstrating truth against falsehood. So let me tell you, let me give you a couple of the examples of, um, of a lofty opinion that we studied this past Friday night. Um, Douglas Futama is a prominent, he's an evil evolutionary biologist, and this is one of the quotes that he has in high school biology books. And and it says, by coupling the undirected purposeless variations, now I don't even know what he's talking about, the first part of it, you know, um, to the blind, uncaring process of natural selection, this is the part that gets your attention. Darwin made the theological or the spiritual explanation of the life processes superfluous. That is a lofty opinion, isn't it? 
and it is setting itself up against the true knowledge of God. Douglas says as much there is that what we've done is we've presented a new truth that makes God unnecessary. We've presented a new truth that really disproves God. Let me just tell you about another one. We also learned in, uh, about how Einstein in the 30s, the 20s and 30s, in his theories, in his math, his equations, he came up against, you know, he, he was struggling with the truth that he had found and that was becoming known and known, that the universe was expanding. And so if something is expanding, it has to have a place where it started, that it expanded from. And so as Einstein came up against that truth and was thinking about, wow, if it's expanding and it needed a place to start from, that means that something outside the universe had to start it. Well, he's thinking something. We're thinking someone. He says something outside the universe had to start it to give it a point to expand from. And he was uncomfortable with that truth. So he wrote what he called the cosmological constant. In other words, it was another equation that made it so that he could see in math, in his reality, in his lofty opinion that he was establishing, that it was unnecessary to have a place where it started from. The cosmological constant made it true, made it, made it set aside a new reality that said, you know what, you don't have to have a place where it start from. With this equation, this makes it so we don't have to consider an outside force to start the universe from. Well, it sounds like I know what I'm talking about, doesn't it? <laughs> I read all that. <clears throat> but what was happening at the same time, you know, is that the Hubble telescope guy, Dr. Hubble, was, was exploring space for the first time in these large dome telescopic laboratories, and he's finding out things there that were mind-boggling. And so Einstein goes to visit Dr. Hubble, and what he came away with there was this statement here. I now see the necessity of a beginning. When he looked through that telescope, and he could not argue against what he was seeing as far as the fact that the universe continued to expand and expand and expand and expand and expand and expand, he said, if that's true, there had to be a beginning. He later said that his cosmological constant was the gravest mistake of his scientific career because the universe had to have a beginning. Something had to start it. In this particular instance, one of the unique times where a lofty opinion was called as much and removed, was said, that's not true. That can't be true. There had to be something else. There had to be a different truth. Well, and our passage says, we demolish all arguments, lofty truths, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Truth is still truth, even when it's not Acknowledged as such. That's just one example of a mindset. 
That's one example of a worldview that is pursued and doggedly pursued and doggedly um, uh, put forth. There are other mindsets as well, there, but these mindsets are not so scientific and high-minded and, and, and you know, take so much to grasp. A lot of the other mindsets that are put up against God, that are, are, are arguments that put up against the knowledge of God, are, are things such as truth is relative. That's fine for you to believe that, Marla. I don't have to because my truth is different than yours and it works for me. Your truth doesn't work for me, so thanks a lot. You enjoy your truth. Yeah. Truth is relative. It's okay for me to do what I'm doing, if, even if you don't like it. Another truth um, is that the fetus is not a person. You know, it's not a person. It's cells. That's another truth that's put up. God is okay with homosexuality. That's okay. He really is. You just misread your Bible, or that's your truth. That's another argument that's put up against God's knowledge. Christianity is hateful, racist, and bigoted. That's another truth you're hearing a lot of, and you're going to keep hearing a lot of it as they continue to seek to close off our voice. And, you know what, churches everywhere, and we need to consider this as well, are drafting statements in their bylaws to protect them from hate speech because they're, come being, they're being chased down by lofty, those with lofty opinions and mindsets. And sex outside of marriage is okay. That's another one. That one's been around a long time. That's kind of an old discussion anymore, isn't it? Those are all mindsets. You know, those are outside. Those are our worldviews. Those are culture wars, so to speak. But there's also theological arguments that are being put up against God's word. There are things such, oh yeah, this is the other one. Children don't need a male father or a female mother. Hey, any kind of combo works, you know, because we said so, because we are really smart. Yeah. So there's other kinds of truths also that are put up against God's truth. For instance, I can work my way to heaven. I can do enough good stuff to get to heaven. You know, I can, I can, I just can. That's the way I get to my heaven. That's my truth again, you know. Another truth that's a theological argument is that I can lose my salvation. We don't believe that. We don't believe that Scripture teaches that, but many people do believe that, and in, doing, in, in believing that, they are hobbled their spiritual walk and constantly in doubt of their eternal security. But that is taught by many churches, and it is a theological argument set up against the knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God. Another one would be, I have to change the way I live to please God. No, once God, God is pleased with you, God, God loves you no matter what, but you will suffer those consequences for the way you live. That's, that would be, but, so, but many people say that you have to change the way you live for God to love you, to bestow blessing upon you, but to, have, uh, to um, want to accept you into the family, you have to be different. And that's not true. God's going to take you just the way you are. And, but he expects you to change afterwards. I need someone between me and God to advocate for me. Well, my God, that's a little G because that's the kind of God you'd have to have to need one to advocate for you there. Let me see, is there any more up there? Oh, and here it is, this little man here. That's my very best artwork. If anyone wants to help me improve on it, you can. But here, this little man here, you know, so all these, these lofty arguments we just talked about, well, the very first one is really far out there. It's like, it's like way far out there. It's like the lofty arguments that I don't really deal with every day. Every day I'm not thinking about an expanding universe and what Einstein thought about it, you know. But sometimes you bump into people who do. But then this next level of, of discussions, this next level of lofty arguments, 
um, that are put up against God's knowledge. The culture wars, we're, we're brushing up against that every single day. Every day we're brushing up against that. And some of us more so than others, based on maybe who we're around, especially in our school districts and our school systems, universities and so forth, you're brushing up against the cultural arguments all the time. But then there's a third circle that's much closer to home. There's a third circle that is, is one that we deal with with every breath. And it's stuff that's inside of our head that we're trying to learn or unlearn or we're trying to figure out if it's true. And it's that third circle that this morning I want to talk about and that I believe is the one that is the most important circle to to capture those thoughts, to bring them into the obedience of Christ and to have those thoughts, those mindsets, those worldviews, those philosophies. It's that inner circle that, 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 it's not really a circle, is it? It's more of like an oblong thing, yeah. But it's that inner part there that I think has the most impact on our transformation. And, that, and this is just a sample of, of philosophies, of mindsets, of, of biblical concepts. This is just a sample of many, many we could have. But if we begin to grasp them, we begin to make them our own, they begin to change us and they expand our transformation, our spiritual transformation more rapidly and they more wholehearted, more roundly. More, more completely is the word, I'm, I don't know, but something along that, more comprehensively. And so let me just give you some examples of what I think falls into that um, center circle there. Now, this, these samples here that I'm going to, these are, I, I read a quote this week, and it says, your entire life is simply composed of right nows. Of right nows. In other words, what this person was saying was that the decision I'm making right now is the most important one because I'm rushed up against it. And what I decide with this, it will will determine my next decision, my next decision. And so really, you know, you think about this and if you're you're working against overeating, you know, what I have in front of me right now is the most important meal I'm struggling with. If you're struggling with an addiction, it's like the decision I'm making right now to take a hit or not is the most important decision I'm making. If you're struggling against pornography, this click of the mouse is the most important click of the mouse I'm struggling with right now. So when we think, when we talk about what we're thinking in our head and how that thinking is influencing my hand and my feet, what we're thinking right now is the most important thought we're having. And it's the most important thought we need to be bringing into captivity, into obedience of Christ. So let me just run a few thoughts about you. And I've, I've mentioned these before, and I just think they have so much power to them. So, for instance, this is the eight that I'm suggesting for today. And I'm leaving them up there in case you want to copy them down. The first one I'm suggesting is living with eternity in mind. The reason why that has so much power to it, and it has the ability to transform us, is the fact of the matter is that too many of us live like what's happening to me right now is going to define me for the rest of my life. When the fact of the matter is what's happening to me right now does not define my life because my life is not, is not limited to these few years on earth. I live for eternity. And the decisions I'm making right now will affect my eternity. If I begin to live that way, all of a sudden some things that are bothersome or a problem right now are not that big a problem. But other decisions I'm making begin to understand that like this affects eternity. So beginning to live with eternity in mind is a transforming thought. It's a transforming mindset. 
live as ambassadors for Christ? We live in a culture very much that says that I am my own man and I can say what I please and you can't stop me. It's a free country. Well, the fact of the matter is that when you trusted Christ, you gave up that right. When you stepped across that middle line from being unsaved to saved, what you did was you were purchased by the blood of Christ and by being purchased by him, you entered into really an essence an indentured servanthood, slavery to Christ. And so what he says we do is what we do. Where he says we go is what we do, where we go. What we, he says to say is what we say. And when we begin to understand that, all of a sudden we begin, and so many people say, geez, I just wish I knew what God's will for me was. Well, we know what his will for us is. We just don't like it. His will for us is to live our lives as an ambassador for him. And so that any people I go to, the people he sends me to, I go with his message, not my own. I go with his opinion, not my opinion. I go on his mission, not my mission. Live as if all is God's. That needs an apostrophe. Sorry, Rosanna. I know I hear about that. And um, I am his servant. I am his steward. So when I begin to understand that what I have in my hand, what I have in my pocket is not mine but his, all of a sudden I'm not attached to it. And if I feel that I'm called to give away a buck or a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, I'm like going, Jesus, God's, it's not mine. No skin off my nose. Here you go, Lord. You can have it. When When I'm a steward of my time in that same way, and I'm like going, Oh, geez, this is not the way I want to use my time. Hey, wait a minute. It's not your time. It's his time, and he allocated it to you. How does he want to use it? And you can, you can do that for your resources. You can do that for your house, for your car, for all your stuff, for your talents, for your skills, for your job, whatever it may be. But when you realize that it's not yours, it's his, and that he gave it to you for you to use for his purposes, all of a sudden, you're like going, okay, it's a transforming thought. It changes the way we behave. I minister where the Lord places me. Well, first of all, you have to realize that, for, that the ministers are not the people who are paid and not the people up front, but that if you are called by the name of Christ and say you have been saved by the blood of the Lamb and that you are a believer, a disciple of Jesus, you are a minister. You are a minister. He has given you a task. He has given you a mission. He has given you a mission field. He has given you, he's given you a job to do. And when you begin to realize that, and you begin to realize that wherever I am is where he has placed me, and that is my job, that's my area of ministry, then you begin to change the way you act. You begin to change the way you look at your world. Everything is under God's control. This week, I was having a really bad, horrible day. And I open up my Twitter account, and there, no, it's my Facebook account, and Steve Serkissian quotes Paul Tripp, and, I, and I'm going to screw it up really badly, but Steve Serkissian quoted Paul Tripp, and it just says, when you wake up today, your world is not out of control. You have a God who is in absolute control. I'm like going, oh my gosh, that was great. Didn't Paul say that? 
Oh, good. I was trying to think. I hope I was quite, you know, I'll give it to you anyway. All right? Yeah, it says, when you woke up today, and if your world seemed in chaos, the fact of the matter is, you serve a God who is in absolute control. And I'm like going, huh. And that helped me for about five minutes. (laughs) Because I don't have that concept down very well yet. But so, like, so, like, I can look around this room and I can look at people who, who are struggling through medical issues and st- people who are struggling through job issues and people who are struggling through relational issues and people who are struggling through unemployment issues and all kinds of issues. And those issues are overwhelming if they're left up to us. But when, the, when, but when you acknowledge that God is in control of them, and that he's working out a good and perfect plan for his pleasure and for mine, all of a sudden I'm like going, oh, oh, really? Okay, this doesn't feel that good, but God's in control. We're okay. It would be the equivalent of like being on a sea ship in a really bad storm. I might be throwing my guts up, but God's in control, and he'll let that ship land. So like in the moment, it might not feel well but we can be assured that God is in control. That changes us. It transforms us. My purpose in life is to worship God. We think that we, again, this is that thing about like, if only I knew God's will for my life, if only I knew what God wanted from me. We know what he wants from us. He wants complete, unadulterated worship and praise from us, that our life reflects him in every way. And when we begin to function with that meaning and with that thought and with that purpose, it changes us. It transforms us. God expects me to spiritually reproduce. God expects me to be sharing my faith with others so that other people are coming to the body of Christ. God expects me to be sitting down with a younger believer and helping them become a mature believer. That is spiritual reproduction. That's what God expects from all of us. And some of us don't believe that, but that is a transforming thought when you do believe it, when you embrace it, and when you begin to live it out. I owe God complete obedience. Another transforming thought. That we do not rationalize God's word in such a way that it's not for us, that that was meant for somebody else, but we begin to obey it. We begin to find him to be more sweeter, We begin to find him to be everything he says he is and so much more. But we never experience that if we never obey him. We never come to that truth. We never come to know that Jesus if we never obey him. One of the things that I've often struggled with with some of my favorite books and most of my favorite books are biographies of great Christian saints, and one of my, one, the one that probably marked me more than any other book in my life was, I read it in my junior and senior, or in the summer of my junior senior year of high school, I read Under the Shadow of the Almighty, which is a biography Elizabeth Elliot wrote about her husband Jim, who was killed in Ecuador, um, and, uh, and the thing that I've often worried about was that I was going to experience Jesus vicariously through other people's experiences and never through my own. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? It's that, that I, I, I don't want to talk about a Jesus that someone else experienced. 
I want to talk about a Jesus that I experienced. And that happens when I obey him. That I begin to know him in that way when I obey him. Because the fact of the matter is, all those guys they write books about, they write books about them because they obeyed so unreservedly. They don't write books about disobedient Christians. They make teaching illustrations out of them about how not to do it. But they don't write books about them. So, those are some ways that I believe that we go about demolishing arguments and every pretense and we begin to set up the knowledge of God in our, in our, in our minds and our hearts and that our mind and our heart is held captive in that regard. It's, it's that when we do that, what we find in our, on the stratego board of our brain and of our mind and our heart, what we find is that all of the God pieces are beginning to be on the, on the board more than all the world pieces when we take those eight concepts and so many others just like them, we find that, the, that that military campaign mindset, we begin to see that there's more God on the board than there is world. And what we find out is that the, 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 the concepts and the mindsets and the worldview that the world puts forth become increasingly powerless in our lives. So this morning, we, we have to ask ourselves, like, what controls my thinking and my heart and my passions? What determines what my hand and my feet will follow? And finally, if the arguments and the pretension against God is not held captive, if, what is, if, if, if all of that stuff that I am my own man, that I can say what I want, that my resources are mine to spend and do with what I want, if all of that stuff is not in being held captive, what is? Well, those eight concepts and so many others like them, they're held captive. They're held powerless in our lives. If the untruth is allowed to reign freely in our mind and hearts. Only you know what is held captive in your life. Only you know what controls you, what rules you, what influences you. Only you know that. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you that you are so long-suffering and so patient with us and that you... wait on us to come to you in our own time so often. God, forgive us for taking so long. But this morning we come to you and we confess that we have lots of stuff in our life that works against you and is not held in the captivity of the truth of the knowledge of God and that untruth, that lofty ideas instead are the things that influence us and control us and keep us from transformation to becoming looking like the, like the image of Christ and, and, and acting more like him. This morning, Father, may we listen to your still small voice and heed that voice and follow you where you lead us. Repent of the sin in our lives. 
and embrace you more wholeheartedly. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, great. Thanks, everyone, for being here today. As a matter of fact, right now, if you want to stick around, they're going to show the, the video from the youth camp from high school ministry, I think, in just a second. So they're not going to show that right now. Never mind. You can leave right now if you want to. Um, but if you're a guest here and you want to come downstairs to the reception, please go downstairs to the reception. They've got something for you to eat and drink. If you're going to, if you're going to South Philly, see you at noon at the barn.